Hi everybody, I'm Greg Bendian. Welcome to part one of my three-part interview with Andy Partridge of XTC. Andy and I spent about five hours together on a Zoom call from his home in Swindon, UK, and we got into a bunch of cool stuff. He's very open and told me that nothing was off the table as far as topics go, so we got into the influence of novelty songs on psychedelic music in the 60s, his love of Tony Williams' Lifetime and Captain Beefheart, and we even got into some XTC lingo, and Andy was generous enough to play some guitar for us through all the parts of this interview and give us musical examples. In 2016, Andy and Todd Bernhardt released this book, Complicated Game, Inside the Music of XTC, and I was asked to write a little book jacket quote for it, and I was happy to read the book and write a vivid and revelatory tone containing precisely the conversation I would love to have with Supreme Musical Strategist Partridge. He and Todd Bernhardt have handed us a treasure trove of juicy detail, which is easily the ultimate XTC Geek Fest. Well, we're about to have another XTC Geek Fest here today, and I welcome everybody. We'll be running parts two and three in consecutive Fridays, so enjoy. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the broadcast. I am Greg Bendian, and I am uh, here once a week to delve into the depths of musical thinking. And uh, I'm really uh, in for it today because one of my musical heroes is here, and uh, he has been gracious enough, enough to give us some time. And we're going to get into some different areas, I think, than what's typical. Uh, maybe of what you have heard of this man speak on, but we'll see. We'll see. Uh, I do want to keep him entertained. I do not want him to get bored. So this will be something uh, where he's going to be speaking with someone that knows his work pretty well and someone who has been inspired by his work and has had over 25 years of admiring his work. Uh, in all different areas of music. He's, he's all over the place expressing himself in different ways with different soundscapes, different sound worlds, um, doesn't care what people might perceive as his game plan because he's on his own path and he's doing it his way. And I admire the hell out of him. I'm so happy to welcome Mr. Okay. Andy Partridge. Hi, Andy. Oh, I'm dying of shucksitis now. It's all true, I'm afraid. Well, I, I ended up kind of making my own path. I don't know whether I was ever going to achieve that. But then suddenly you wake up one morning and you think, hey, I, I made my own path. And you, you look back and there it is, right through the middle of that lovely bean field. Listen, that's a huge part of what keeps me interested in Andy Partridge because you did it. And in many ways, I, I don't know how many people have brought this up with you, but I feel I have to say it because it's true. I think in many ways, XTC were supremely subversive in that, hmm. in that you were always able to do, take care of business, whether, whether uh, material was received well or not, there were always likable and beautiful 
crafted songs that people could get into on any level. My cousin from uh, New Jersey could get into them. But then also you're, you're interested in ambient, you're interested in electronica, you're interested in dub and all these fusions of different musical worlds. That's not lost on a guy like me who came up with Beatles and the Zappa stuff and, and all of that at a very early age. And you know, who'd want, be, part... who'd want to be stuck on a musical diet of just burgers? You know, burgers every meal every day for eternity. No, thank you. You know, you it's it's there's every flavor of music out there. Why can't we why can't we have burger one day and then the next meal we you know we have we have something totally different, some something vegetarian, something a nice soup, a goulash, you know, some some Japanese foods. It's it's all out there in musical terms to to eat and to defecate because making music is very close to shitting and well, or it could be close to making oxygen. <sighs> no, I think because I never met a musician that wasn't fucked up. <laughs> I think making, making music is is purging yourself of all that fucked upery. In your case, uh, is that true? Absolutely, 100%. It isn't mine. It, totally. Um, and I, you know, I, I'm not going to get all emotional about it, but making music is one of the, the few things I can do to uh, consciously or unconsciously rid myself of some of the pain, some of the mess from the past, you know. I'm still working out stuff from when I was a kid. I think so, we, I think we all are. Yeah, you know, what's it, the first seven years you're, you're getting filled up with crap and the next 70, you, you're trying to get rid of that, trying to get back to that, that neutral state, you know. So I, I never met a musician that wasn't a mess. And um, I think it's it's crapping and vomiting and getting rid of all this stuff. And and I, I was thinking about that. I knew you were kind of going to ask me things like this, and I uh, and I'm thinking, well, how can I how can I explain myself? This is like being that that grand jury in heaven, you know. Explain yourself, young man. Um, you know, Andy, I, it's it's part that. But it's also just part, where are you at in your view now as a 60 something year old? 67, yeah. So we're 10 years apart, I'm, I'm 57. So, you know, I'm at that point where I'm thinking about, cause you know, this whole shutdown thing got all of us thinking about. And, you know, uh, this, prog this podcast came about because of this situation. And, you know, the, the idea that this stuff maybe would be fun to talk about and keep everybody's spirits up to, to have, you know, go inside because it's so hard to go outside, go. So you're the guy, you, you know, to me, you've always been like the obsessive, sensitive thinking man's damage guy. And oh, very damaged. That's, that's the, that's the, that's the key word. But deals with it through his intelligence and a head and heart guy. And that's big for us because we were into that with Joni. Is that Joni Winter or Joni Winter? 
listen, motherfucker, you're a post Joni figure. <laughs> yeah, hang on, let me, let me get the teeth going. Well, no, what can you, I tell you? you? Yeah, I, you know, where do I look at it now? I, I try not to. I try not to look at what I've done. Not what you've done, but how you feel about what you've done and what you're, how it influences what you're doing now. Because I was going to bring up a concept with you that Pat Metheny turned me on to, which I thought you'd appreciate, is that you go through periods where you're in intake mode. Oh, absolutely. And, and then you have periods where you're in output mode. Yeah. And sometimes you're in input, sometimes you're in output, sometimes you're sort of mixing and matching and, and all yeah. of this. Well, I, I think there's also a, also a third state, which is uh, uh, just zone everything out. And you're turning off from, you're not taking in, you're not putting out, you're just leveling the horizon to be nothing. That's uh, good too. Buildings yeah. in the way, you don't want any mountains in the way, you don't want any trees or crops, you just want grassland forevermore and just stare at that and kind of empty the brain and talk to your heart and say, where do you want to go now? What, do you, what have you always fancied doing that you never did? And, and this is, I think I'm going through one of these, I'm out on the, I'm out on the never ending steps at the moment. You know, it's uh, the horizon just goes on forever. And I'm thinking, what do I want to do now? You know, bearing in mind what I've done, I've done bubble gum, I've done, done unusual, I've done, like you say, electronica stuff, I've done dubbery, I've written for other people, I've produced, you know, it, I've done lots of stuff, but um, what do I, where do I want to go now? And sometimes you just have to turn every light, every engine off. So I, I would agree, I agreed definitely with the input and the output times, but I said there's also a third stage where you have to have, you have to have off, you have to have nothingness. Well, I certainly don't need music on all the time. And I like going into nature and listening to nature and not hearing music. Uh, I deal with a, a ringing in one of my ears. Oh man, I, I have severe tinnitus, which was a, a studio accident. Yeah, and I also okay. it was it was studio born in my case, I think as well. Uh, but yeah, so I think the importance of of that state, where also do, in your creative process, I, I know that uh, you also are an additional stimuli guy in that you will take inspiration from, from anywhere that it comes. You don't question, you leave the door open, you leave the window open. You leave well, I, I, can't, open. I, can't cut off, I can't cut off stimulation into one bag or another. If, if I hear a piece of music, I never get a piece of music. I always get pictures and colors and, and stage sets. That's the thing with me. It's like, a, yes. you know, a, a, if I, if I hear a, a piece of jazz or a piece of a symphony or a pop tune or whatever, even a slice of mindless bubble gum, which I love, by the way, I love simple, banal, idiotic music. Oh, yeah. it's, it's such cheap perfume, it's so effective. Well, listen, don't you want the full world experience from the, you know, I always say like, what Shakespeare said was, uh, never is something wrong when uh, duty and, and 
honesties do tender it, something to this effect. And I so I love that people's vibrational level is yes, bubblegum. And they mean it. So they're, they're telling you about that world and they're pulling you into it. Also, you and I both came up with the monkeys. Oh, absolutely. You know, the, the, kings, the kings of bubblegum. But here's one for you. I, I know we could talk about what I, what I was, what I was, sorry, what I was leading oh, to say. I, I can't hear music on its own. Um, I, I always hear sounds. I see stage sets. I hear people talking lines. I see colors and, and you know, it's the synesthesia thing. It's all, all the, the switchboard is all messed up. Okay. Uh, you know, it's plug one doesn't go to connection one. Plug two doesn't go to connection two. Plug one may go to connection 12. Plug two may go to collection, connection 55. It's, you know, I, I can't hear music on its own and just have a piece of music. Loads of other stuff goes off. And it's the same with if I see a picture in a book, I sometimes hear sounds and music and, and uh, sounds and music that aren't there but I, I can, I'm getting stuff from pictures, you know? Uh, so this, uh, my switchboard is really messed up, but thank goodness, someone up there likes me. Well, that's interesting, uh, Andy, because I have, I have exactly the same experience. It started with me very young. Um, I think it started with hearing Revolver and music of that time at that time. So I was three and four years old hearing Revolver and then also my mother took me to see Planet of the Apes when it came out in 68, I would have been four and a half. Oh, hence the poster behind you. Yes, it's a huge event because I was so open as a four-year-old that I was hit with Jerry Goldsmith's world of sound that was that visual world and the visual sonic thing was cemented in terror. You wanna learn how you're feeling something? You get the shit scared out of you by Absolutely. it. Really? And to, this day, to, like, to this day, I search for that feeling. Well, I got that feeling as a kid with novelty records. Yes. Novelty records. The only, the only interesting music that the BBC would play on the radio was for kids. Because uh, otherwise it was just show tunes, which I, I love show tunes light classics yeah i love a lot of light classics but when they played novelty records for kids it was always loaded with slapback echo there'd be a section where they put way a thousand tons of reverb on the voice they'd stop and then they'd edit in a sped up voice piece where there's like a a mouse or a germ talking or something uh then they'd have like just gibberish and kind of skits playing out while the, the band are just treading water, you know. And to me, I loved those sonic, the sonic plays, the playlets of novelty records. And some of them really terrified me. Um, Mommy, give me a drink of water, Danny Kay. There's an airplane flying around my room. <laughs> And as a kid, I'd lay there and I'd see that fucking airplane going in little circles around above my bed. You know, these I would live out these uh, novelty records I was hearing on the radio. Novelty records are huge. 
Yeah, it's, it's a huge experience. Well, it's a, our form of what our parents probably had in terms of radio play. Yeah, and I, and I think Novelty Records caught the, the generation that were raised on Novelty Records in the 50s, by the time they were spending their pocket money or paper round money or whatever on buying records, the whole psychedelic thing, which was novelty records for, for teenagers. You it's exactly the same. It's the same, it's the same process. It's the same echoes, delays, edits, spread up, slowed down, backwards, da da da, playlets, da da da. It's it's the same thing. It's just the generation is 10 years older, they got some money to blow. You know, Strawberry Fields Forever is a 1950s kids novelty song made for for a kid who grew up during that period who Absolutely. was produced by the guy that produced those songs produced all those records in the first place yeah absolutely 100 percent yep so <sighs> blows smoke out of barrel reloads for another <laughs> hey we got there together yeah but listen, that is something I did. It's, you know, I'm so glad you happened upon it because it's on my, one of my cards. But I really feel that you, of all people, in that period where that music comes around. So you're aware of the, early, the kids' records going into the next phase. 100%. That's what right? happened. And you're a synesthesia person. And I was also alive and aware of a lot of that stuff, like I say, at around five, six years old, still in the 60s, nine years old. So that stuff really got in my head. And I had scenes and colors and lighting and all of these details for all of those early songs. Like mm -hmm. 2000 Light Years From Home used to really terrify me. Oh, wonderful record. My favorite psych album of all time. Everything is wrong slash right about it. I, I oh man, Citadel, mm. the poetry in Citadel, mm. the the sonics, the sloppy drumming, Jesus Christ! I mean, so, everything about that track is perfection, um, and and it's it's really it's brutal and dreamlike. It's like a, a violent, multicolored dream. It's it's wonderful. I love that whole album, you know? Yeah, the trippier, the better for me. Yeah, that, that to me is, if, if, if you pen me into a psychedelic area only and get the pistol to my head, Satanic Majesty's request is, I'm a bit obsessed about it. I even, I even know that at one time it was going to be called um, uh, Psychedelic Christmas um, because at the end of side one you have the theremin and sort of white noise if you listen carefully the theremin is playing we wish you a Merry Christmas Okay, but just let us just think for a moment what that would have been, what it would have meant if if they went with that. I know it's really goofy. It's so goofy. And also but the that, mystique you put on. So, so you went from Santa to Satan. 
Yeah, <laughs> Satan claws. <laughs> yeah, they're 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 I, I they're satanic. <laughs> Majesty's request. Wish you and yours. Yeah, yeah. Very lovely. Well, that that album is um, a friend of mine. Uh, his older brother bought it, and he kind of not stole it, but purloined it from his brother's bedroom and lent it to me, said, you're really gonna like this. Okay. And I, didn't, I, did, I had it for months, I didn't wanna give it back, but his brother was starting to beat him up about it physically. So I had to give it back, you know. Well, I wanna ask you about this period because then that means that you're having a psychedelic experience as a young person hearing what other songs? Everything, I, I couldn't afford I couldn't afford psychedelic albums, so I was really big on getting singles. You know, I I sure borrow single. I had a dancette player, and I'd borrow singles from friends, school friends, and and kids across the street. You know, um, so I loved anything that that had a um, an unusual bent to it, but was concise i liked concision i i get bored too quickly I, i'm a bit adhd like that i i give me two and a half minutes and then i'm kind of okay what's next what's next you know drives drives my wife crazy she's you know she says you're you're just too on too on calm down calm down and i i get so, because so your bored. material bears that out pretty clearly yeah i i, I get bored far too easily i want to move on to the next thing but you know what's but, good uh, about that too andy about concision is something that we really have uh, enjoyed about your work is i never felt like you overstayed welcome on anything and that being concise in the best composerly way was i mean i i, I even liken it to, to you know this is so far afield and, and people who know might might appreciate this but there's a, a progressive metal band called Meshuggah, and they are so concise that on any type of compositional level, you realize they're not going to do six subjects. It's going to be three subjects max developed over time in, in around four or five minutes. And it's never 20, you know, not to say never, but this kind of thing where you say, this guy takes me from here to here to here and everything makes sense along the way. Oh, and then there's a surprise. Oh, and, that, and then there's some unusual choices. Surprise, and, you know, surprise is essential. Greg, if music without surprises, music that just, that goes along like this. Oh yeah, okay, yeah. No, music has to, whoop, oh, just when you thought we were going over there, a little piece comes in from over here, but that fits where that's gonna go later. Oh yeah. Wow! No, it, if it's just a straight, you know, if it's just vanilla, I, I can't take vanilla. I, I, who wants a diet of just vanilla? I think the ADD, the age group, the age period we're talking about, and the movement of radio and music to be produced to be visual created the perfect storm for us to become the beasts that we are. Yeah. I do think I, might I, I, I would borrow. You were asking about records. I couldn't buy albums because I just didn't have any money. 
so I would borrow, uh, borrow or swap or whatever singles from kids. And I, I loved uh, things like My White Bicycle, um, you know, with its, its backward kind of pulse. Um, and and it's sort of, I think it's like backward hi-hats or something. But that backwards. You know, it's powered on by that. And um, again, it's got, it's got little playlets within it. It's got strange sounds. It's got some feedback. It's got some unusual backward forward edit things. Loved all that. Uh, I especially loved um, the small faces B-sides for some reason. Um, they're I was hoping you'd say small faces. Yeah, small faces. They're, they're, especially the stuff they did on the immediate label when they started getting a little more open uh, minded about things. And we're really given a free hand by Andrew Lou Goldham to, uh, to, to, yeah, do what you fancy, you know. Uh, loved all that. So uh, when I started getting albums, I was really catching up on the stuff that I was big time exposed to, like Beatles. I, I, one of my first albums, if not the first one I bought, was um, Sgt. Pepper. Um, How visual was that for you? Bang. Boom. I, I, you know, it's, it's a mess. It's, think about, it's think a, about that opening moment, right? It's every color under the sun at once. It's every sound under the sun at once. Um, uh, but I then it, the twin track is, is, um, is I, uh, not long before, not long after that, I bought the Monkeys first album because I'm seeing them on TV every week and it's going in my head, bang, bang, bang. This is the life you want, bang. This is how you get off this council estate, bang. Learn to play guitar, write some tunes, bang, bang. Live in a house with three other fellas, bang. Have the girls chase you, bang. It, it's, it, that was like, that became the hard day's help blueprint for, for how I get off this council estate, how I don't have to cycle to a shitty job in a factory every day. I want, you know, I want that house with the three other fellas and the girls around and uh, I want to be able to audition in a phone box for a record label. You know, I, I want all that kind of, I want to be chased by Indian death cults. Well, maybe not that bit. But you chose that. And, you know, I, I've been thinking about this a lot as I head into my late 50s, um, that you know, I chose the suffering. I chose the, the victories. I chose the ability to do what I wanted, to express innermost things. And what did I think I was going to get a really good deal for that? No, forget it. You, it's, there's, no, there's no money in the arts, son. Not for most people. And then no. people who are... For the sponges, for the sponges that, that are supposed to be packing you in. Oh, we'll keep you safe from harm. We're just sponges. No, the sponges do all the soaking. Well, listen, that, you know, we've, we've been screwed, you know, by, by various people over the course of our lives. <clears throat> I mean, it could be even an insurance salesman or something. But I mean, it's like you're coping with these things. They're stress points. I also think that that I've really appreciated that you've been open about dealing with anxiety and depression 
and for those of us who also deal with that? Well, it, it made me. It it made it made my art. Yes. For want, for want of a better word, I always joke and say the F is silent in my art, but it 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 made that art. It it. Mm, I embrace the fucked upness. I embrace being ripped off. I love failure. There's no better teacher in the world than failure. I don't fear it as much. Yeah, I, I, I like don't fear it at all now. I, I know that, yeah. you know, that I, I thought that we made at the time of making the albums that XTC made, I thought, okay, we've made the best album in the universe. And then it wouldn't sell. And so I'd think, oh shit, it's only sold X amount. My God, I thought we'd sell a million. Next one's got to be twice as good. Okay. So next one. Okay, we've made the best album in the universe. No, it's it's not sold very well at all, lads. Oh my God, we've got to make something even twice as good as that, three times as good. And, that, and that's how it went on and went on and went on. And you can't buy. You cannot buy the lessons that failure presents to you if you are open to embracing failure it's a beautiful shapely woman it's not a horrible ball of rusty spikes that's that's what it looks like in the distance but when you get close to it she's a beautiful woman that whispers all this stuff in your ear and gives you all these opportunities to make everything better 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 more intense better melodies better lyrics better every fucking thing yeah yeah right or certainly more and personal, because what's the, the 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 point of aping other people's shit? You know, um, the fact that you guys like rethought guitar parts in in a post beef heart world uh, and did it your way is something I spoke with Dave Gregory about, and that you know I I love that that you guys were as as a live unit alone playing that shit, jumping around. The incredible energy on stage, uh, how tight you guys were, how grooving, how fun. It's a very fucked up thing, Andy. Don't, you know, don't ever for a minute take that for granted. One of the best live units of the music. Yeah, um, I, used to, I used to dispense with that at one time and say, oh, no, we were just average, da, 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 da. No. Now, if I look back on it, I can see, you know, I... I Somebody will say, hey, I never realized this gig was recorded or this was filmed or whatever. And I'll, and I'll watch 10 minutes of it and I think, that's pretty damn good. There's yes, nobody yeah. out there doing that like that, you know. But you were saying uh, about there's no point in aping anyone else or copying anyone else. The thing is, I think that is, for me, copying people and getting it wrong is enormous for me. Okay. Because I'm a dreadful learner. I'm dreadful at learning. Dave Gregory was so good at learning. I used to go and see Dave in bands when I was like uh, 13, 14. He'd be 15 going on 16. And I'd see him on stage playing these Hendrix covers. And I'm thinking, wow, how does he play like that? I'd never be as good as that. And... Uh, I, I was crap at learning. The first band I was in was called Stray Bludes, and all we played was 12-bar material, but I never even knew the chord of B. Everything was in E, so I, I'd be playing E, A, and D, 
because I knew D, but I didn't know B. It was like that Beatles thing. They had to get on a bus and go across Liverpool to learn from somebody who knew what B looked like. I was playing in a blues band on stage, making up this shit as we went along, playing the wrong three chord tricks. It, it, it's, but it, it, it just set me on this path to this other universe of, of getting stuff wrong. Yes. And, you know, I, I'm, I realized two days ago, I realized two days ago that I'm still playing the Tony Williams lifetime version of Vashgar. I'm still playing it wrong. And I think I've finally got it now. And I'm so excited. I'm going to just give you an acoustic rendition of the melody because I love that melody so much. Oh, Hang on. <clears throat> I just, everything, I just really love the fact that. Um, there's it's it's B and then there's that it's such a McLaughlin thing we got B um we've got that E flat over the top man that's such a McLaughlin chord that's true he's used that a lot but then you've got your uh, um uh, uh. so on so on so on um i learned the first few seconds of mclaughlin solo but gave up after wow up that. but uh, that that was that is my desert island album of all time is it really yeah emergency that that caught me a side swipes just when i was go on you want to say something well, I, I do want to say something. I, I know I know of your love of Lifetime, but I have to ask you the Lifetime question. Where do you stand on the vocal performances by Tony Williams? I love them because they're so awful. They're so pathetic and, and keening. We're on the road, no heavy load. It's, it's very much in the same ballpark as, um, oh, what's his name, drummer, soft machine. Wheelchair. Marshall? Marshall? Mr. Marshall? No. Weisman? Uh, um, Robert Wyatt. Robert Wyatt, yeah. The same pathetic, keening voice. You just want to cuddle it and say, there, there, everything will be fine. Oh, wow. And, and that is what the Tony Williams' voice does when he, when he sings. He's, he's only singing on a couple of tracks, and he's double-tracked. But it's still got that Robert Wyatt, you just want to protect it. It's like a little injured lamb or something, you know? That's heavy. <laughs> it's, it's a 10-ton injured lamb. Yeah. Well, it's, you're, uh, you're, you're making me rethink it. And, and I know that uh, I listen to live bootlegs where he's openly being booed during those moments live. Yeah, well, that's just the assholiness of the unknowing, isn't it? You know, it's... Yes, your assholiness. You know, audiences are, are you know. I, I was very much, a, when we played live, I was very much of the Pete Townsend, treat it like you're in a war with the audience, which was, is a big mistake, I think, really. Um, I well, used to you, write, but also, were you, were you thinking party atmosphere or dance hall thing? Aren't you that no, too? No, I, I went out there as absolutely intending to kill them 
and bury every one of them and turn them to ash. Um, I didn't love them in any way. Um, it was very much a war, which was totally the wrong. If I'd have gone out there and let them embrace the band, I think we, we may have found more acceptance more quickly. Are but, you, uh, you're saying that now, but did, were you really feeling that at the time? Yeah, I felt not contempt, but I felt they were the enemy and they weren't there to be won over. They were there to be destroyed. Uh, and if that meant the only thing we could do it with was our music, then let our music destroy them. Um, you know, and then they come and see you back in the dressing room later and you've got a dressing room with a hundred people milling around. So and let me ask you, you're setting up a very interesting question and something I want, I always ask people in okay. that moment, in these moments, not like in the rosy rear view mirror, in those moments, do you feel sociologically that that's what's happening and that there's not really an embrace of the music and that XTC's efforts in this regard would have been wasted on them? Because I think about when I listen to contemporaneous live bands of that period, the police are great and talking heads, etc. It's not my thing. And my thing was what you guys were doing. But I have to say, uh, shout out to my buddy, Alex Klein, my story with XTC is I came in right after uh, None Such and, and, and you guys were off. So the, the first stuff that he played me was Scarecrow People, number one. He's a, he's a, a wonderful drummer, composer, and shout out to the person that sent him there uh, was Dan Morris, the late great drummer. So the drummer thing with drummers telling drummers to listen to XTC is a thing. And I was amazed. I uh, then uh, the Maddox stuff he played me. Uh, well, yeah, that was uh, that, that was um, uh, Pat Mastelotto and Scarecrow people. Yeah. So 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 I'm saying in addition to Pat, we love Pat. We love Prairie. We love like so you always had crack drummers. And you and Absolutely. when when we haven't got Terry Chambers anymore, it's like hell. We better have the best that we can get hold of. For the job. Because of your obsession with that chair being a musical integrated part of the composition. I, I love drums. I'm a frustrated drummer. My, my father used to play drums uh, along, along with a few chords on a guitar and a clarinet, weirdly. Saw a great photograph of him not too long ago where he's, he's on, on, on board his ship and he's entertaining the, the, uh, the sailors on the ship and he's He's got a denim shirt hanging out and he's rail thin and he's got this baseball cap and he's playing a clarinet. And I'm thinking, wow, you know, this is in the 50s. You look like the height of you look like a, a friend of Kerouac's or something, you know. But um, my father always used to leave his drum kit set up in my bedroom. And what was it? Do you remember? No, a premier. That makes sense. Yeah, that's a British company. Yeah, Premier Kit, I think. And he'd go to work, and I'd, and because I, I knew the neighbors were in, so I very quietly would have to sit and drum very quietly on this kit. But I love drums, and I, I think percussively and rhythmically, like the, the, the very 
heart of XTC was myself fitting between the gaps that Terry Chambers left. That was the main part of the clock, was I would get Terry to play a, a certain sort of rhythm, and then I would find the holes in that so that I could speak and he could speak, and there'd be a dialogue, a duologue between us. How was this arrived at, in rehearsal? Yeah, and then, then uh, um, either Barry would, would fit in that another part of the machine or Dave would then fit in um and and Colin would had very melodic bass lines but he would he would be thinking melodically but he was like really keen to sit with that bass drum that was his thing it was uh if, if you're not sat with that bass drum there's no hope of groove going on you know well, let's talk about that for one second because the rhythm section component, I mean, it's really a four person rhythm section in a way. Absolutely. Uh, right? Absolutely. So, but if you look at the bottom of it, yeah, I think that they lock well together, but also Colin's construction of bass parts is so special. And it reminds me of a Chris Squire quote when someone asked him what was, you know, what's his approach? And he says, I just try to do something a little bit less ordinary. There you go. The essence of interest. We don't want vanilla. We want, you know, we need a little pinch of curry and we need a little bit of uh, a nice, uh, a nice sesame oil there and just not vanilla all the time. You know, tonic dominant, tonic dominant, doom, 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 hey. doom. Well, on that subject, Andy, I had to also say the group and your musical world has embraced consonants and dissonance. And this is an important it's thing. thing. It's, it's the same thing. Same, same thing of what? It's, the, it's, it's all on the table to eat. What do you, what do you want? Well, I want a ni little nibble of consonants there, maybe a bit of that consonants from over there. Oh, oh. You know what? I want some dissonance. Um, that's uh, yeah. It's like salt and pepper. It's like sauce. You can't have a whole diet of dissonance because it's again, it's like a whole diet of vanilla. Who'd want to? It, it's it's too much flamethrower. You know. Let's let's. It, it, but it, it's it's all. You know. That works. That works. That works. That works. And that. And that, and that, and so on. You know, it, it's it all works. Why it has to be tonic dominant, tonic dominant? Oh, come on, do, let's let, go to learn the bass. We no, could do an hour with you just doing guitar lessons. I, I've I've steered my students in many cases to your video guitar lessons. There's a part. Ah, well, they weren't lessons. I got, I got caught in a hotel room in New York while I was uh, promoting um, Wasp Star. And this, this guitar paper called up and said, look, if we bring a, a, a guitar, which wasn't my guitar, people say, hey, he plays a, you know, he plays a red squire. Well, I do play a squire at home, but mostly I play um, uh, an Ibanez artist. But uh, they, they just came over to the hotel room and plonked down this thing and said, here, have a guitar, talk about guitar playing, you know. Which was very yeah. useful. It's, it's really, I'll tell you something, something from the, the jazz world that, that was really influential for me oh. and this this I think has occurred 
all over the place, especially in early XTC, is this interval. Do you know East Broadway Rundown by Sonny Rollins? Yeah, of course. It's It's got that lovely um, <laughs> harmony. And, and the riff is... Uh, <laughs> That's a fantastic interval. Fourth, yeah. Yeah, and, and it's all over C. And I heard that and it was like, why can't that be in pop music? Why is it stuck in the jazz ghetto? Why why can't it come and live in in bubblegum music, why can't and you're it... doing that right out of the gate on on white music and uh, go to? Yeah, it was just I I was puzzled why all these flavors weren't acceptable in the sort of cooking that we had to eat. Why why can't we have dissonance in in a two minute song? So it was a palate thing for you. At the end of the day, you want you want all the options on with the big canvas. Yeah, I I. I why restrict yourself? I mean, there are there are benefits to restricting yourself sometimes. Absolutely. And other times it can be the death of you. You know, the Ramones painted in two colors. Uh, and initially that was really thrilling. But then it it really wore really quickly, wore out very quickly. And you just That's wanted, Ramones, you know, you wanted the Ramones to make a, a slow acoustic record. Yeah. Or or Joey not to sing and play an oboe or something. And, and you know, you wanted it to um, to grow because, uh, like I say, I get bored quickly and, and I don't want to be doing the, exactly the same thing. The next record and the next record and the next record. But to me, I, I couldn't see why. Why it all had to be split up into into these these ghetto. Yeah, I would love to talk more about about the diversity of your mind because uh, there's so much to talk about there. But be, I, just before we move on, in the live setting, uh, I, I wonder, did you ever have a show you enjoyed? Did you ever feel happy and, and enjoyed the gig with, with a cool band playing with you? Maybe one in 10, one in 10 gigs where you felt personally you had a good night um because there were so many variables it's like you've got to have a good night playing wise you've you've got to know the other three have got to be individually happy with their playing you've got to know that the sound is good you've got to know that the audience is at least willing to be killed um happy to be destroyed uh and, and you know the the lights, the sound, the, the blah blah blah. Did you eat something? Were you were, did you have a little touch of food poisoning from eating at some dodgy restaurant uh, that lunchtime or whatever? I don't know. It's there's so many things, but like one in ten where it all seemed to click, and you all said that was a great gig. Don't ask me where they were, because after five years of it, well, actually ten years of it, because if you take the five years where we were unknown, there was five years of doing gigs where where you know sometimes you play to no people you know you'd play pubs and there'd be no people for the first set and then you had to go on and then one person had come in for a pint 
and you're you're playing. No, that's <laughs> you know, real. That's a real thing. Yeah. It really, it really is like that. So you just have to treat it like a, you know, a badly paid rehearsal. That's if you see any money at all. Hmm. So, yeah, one in one in ten gigs were were really good. But um, how's sound on stage night tonight? How is the sound on stage night tonight? Are you hearing well? Uh, too damn loud. Too damn loud. You guys are loud on stage. Yeah, uh, I mean Colin was, was Terry. Colin was the loudest, um, and Terry had to have all his drums through enormous side monitors, and floor monitors, and stage side monitors. He did. Oh yeah, I mean I was up on his drum podium one sound check. And he did one snare beat, and it, it literally blew me off of off of his podium with one snare beat. That's how he, loud he needed it to feel it. Yeah, yeah. So we would we would be on stage, average an hour and three quarters. Right. So yeah. So I I I got I gave myself tinnitus, vaguely tinnitus. I'd say about two out of ten from touring right uh, but the main the main tinnitus came from a studio incident which i had headphones on and the mixing desk was up full and it was supposed to be silence i was hearing and so i did could you hear your guitar could you hear your vocals uh yeah but it was it was probably the equivalent of me getting blown off that drum riser with one snare beat if you'd have come up to my monitors and hearing my guitar and voice and stuff, it was you probably would have been whoa, that's too loud. Um, I think we, you know, you know, they had those books of lists in the early eighties. I think we made one of those book of lists uh, in the the top top twenty loudest bands in the world, which I could never figure that out because we we're only using the same higher PA stuff that the other bands would use. You know, oh. Come on, lads, we've got to pack this away. We've got to go and do a motorhead gig tomorrow. Or, oh, God, sorry, we're late. We were just doing the Who last night or whatever. So you just, you're only using the same PA stuff as other bands. But can, can, I, can I geek with you? But like, as far as what your setup is, like, are you keeping the same guitar rig the whole time? Um, no, what happened was <laughs> um, also thievery was very good for me. Mm. Um, I used I used to use when we first started. I used to use uh, uh, a friend knocked up a pedal board, basically a piece of wood, and we just nailed half a dozen effects to Which it. Which had what on it? Less than that, actually. Um, a fuzz, uh, a flanger slash chorus thing. Oh yeah. MXR. No. Um, Oh, what else? Oh, in the in the early days of XTC, I used to use a a really old Watkins copycat. Um, uh, and then I had a. Uh, I started with an H and H, transistor combo. Think about you know about this size. Yeah, for for how long? Uh, until that got stolen. Um, and then I got a Marshall 50, was it? It may have been 100. It was just one 4 by 12. But that's and like I, during go-to at least, right? 
Yeah, uh, and, and I had a martial head on that. But I used to have an old Selma True voice from the 1950s. And I used that as a preamp. So I'd plug into the Selma True voice. You know, you see those great old photographs of the Beatles uh, in Hamburg and stuff, and they got a, a Selma True voice on stage. I had one of those Selma True voices and I'd plug into it. And then I found that you could jump out and, and I'd jump out of that into the front of a Marshall. So forget Brian May and his jumping of AC-30s. I was jumping from a, a true voice into the front of a Marshall. So what so, did that give you, Andy? What, what was that going to give you? I like the, the valviness of the true voice. The Marshall was a bit harsh, but it had push. It had power. Necessary power. Yeah, because I needed... Amount, in the early days of bad PAs, I, I needed I needed enough woof kicking my ass to get into it. You know, I, I needed the bravery of volume. Um, no, there's nothing wrong with it. I always say it is a rock show after all. Yeah, you know? absolutely. And Mahavishnu. The, Mahavishnu was a rock show after all. Yeah, absolutely. I went to see them at, at Crystal Palace Bowl. Um, I weren't interested in Yes, who were, were headlining. I wanted oh, to see... Oh, it was Mahavishnu Yes, Double Bill? Yeah. <laughs> and to sandwich them, to sandwich them, they had this sort of folksy good time band, Lindisfarne. I know Lindisfarne. Yeah, I, so they I, had... Fog on the time. I went, there, I went and slept on somebody's floor, uh, a friend of a friend of a friend. I went and slept. It was like an empty house. I just slept on the floor of this empty house got up in the morning there was no food in the cupboards and I brought an oxo cube do you know an oxo cube of course a beef stock cube yeah and I and I, I had enough money for the bus I already had the ticket and I had enough money for the bus fare to get from where I was in this so I, I had nobody to say goodbye to whoever was there had gone to work or wasn't there I left the house got on a bus with this oxo cube got myself to um to uh, uh, Crystal Palace, um, uh, ate the Oxo cube on the bus. I peeled the silver paper off and I ate this stock cube because I was so hungry. Uh, and um, when I was there, I, I met somebody I knew and they bought me a beer or two. So we just laid out and watched, um, laid out and watched those three bands. But I think I left during Yes's set. I like Yes, I've come to like Yes in retrospect, I didn't like them at the time. I think it was, they represented something I was trying to get away from. There's Which a lot of, at the time it was substandard jazz. Oh, that's fascinating. Because prog was substandard jazz. <laughs> it, it was like, well, you're not as good as, you know, you're not as good a player as John McLaughlin, so why are you insisting on a 12-minute solo here? Because all you're doing is you're just you're just amping up Chuck Berry to the nth degree. And do you know what I mean? Do I know what you mean? And also, yeah. you touched on this earlier about brevity. The great composers and the great players all knew that. Everything is done and dusted in two minutes or less because human 
interest levels, human psyche can stay hooked for up to two minutes. But, but so the, Andy, I'm going to give you a counter argument and, and not to disrespect you. But okay, just, go ahead. Go let ahead. me just flesh this one out a little bit here. Please. The great composers would, would come up with a little motif, you know, the kind of da 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 da. Then they'd work that motif for one minute to two minutes. Da 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 da. It's the same thing. And then they knew people were getting bored of that. So the motif would change. And it's the same with jazz. You know, you get the great heads in bebop, the great, the great head of the song. These great heads that, and then they knew that after this had gone around and we're talking about a minute to a minute and a half of head, it's time to take off because people don't want to hear that same thing. They're already wondering what's next, where next. So the long form is, is not something that interests you in long form. Long form only works if you, if you can, it's like a film. You have to refer to earlier scenes. Mm -hmm. You have to have characters that run through it. You have to have stuff that will come in later that you never saw earlier. You have to have stuff that will die out and never come back. Um, and there has to be a point to it at the very end. And he wins and he gets the girl and he finds the gold. The end. That's fair. But much long form electric music doesn't do that filmic journey. It's it's just schoolboy show offering. But that's certainly one experience, Andy. But there are also other experiences that I kind of want to get lost in something for a long period of time and sure. and test my because part of ADD is also hyper focus. So we have the ability to do hyper focus on things and and I feel like that served me because then I'm going to do that when I'm working, you know. So sure. like if I can hang with Steve Reich, you know, uh, music for eighteen musicians for seventy five minutes, I should be cool, you know. But I, I don't see that as show offering. To That's me. Yeah, that is making a landscape. You're in the train and you're passing this landscape and oh, look, great mountains going by. Oh, look, wonderful little village there. Oh, look at that bit. It goes to a beach, it opens out to the oh, sea. Oh, look, it's snowing. Yes. Uh, so it's, it's, but if it was the same thing exactly for the whole journey, it'd be, is this it you know but it's not the same thing with that because people like Steve Reich and and Philip Glass uh I mean my favorite works of Philip Glass and I yeah. love him dearly um I even lived for a while in New York and I'd see him every evening eating cake in this cafe but I just couldn't pluck up courage to talk to him what neighborhood was that Andy uh it was over um Erica lived on second avenue and fourth oh wow. and, okay. and so we'd go one or two streets uh over towards the west or was it towards the east hang on well, I, towards I the east there's also those uh polish restaurants and really cool cafes yeah we well I, it was all in that area that i yeah. lived for a few months you know like three months at a time then i'd have to come back to britain visas had run out and then i'd go back again and do another three months i saw sun ra i was in a 
in a diner once and Sun Ra walked past in all the robes uh, with a long staff and he was talking to some young black kid who was kind of expanding and did it and, and Sun himself was kind of sunny, was walking along, just nodding beatifically. And I, I was like, you know, spluttering into my de decaf. Jesus Christ, it's Sun Ra. Sun fucking Ra. Andy, I have... I have stories for you about the, those guys because that I grew up with those guys being around. You know, this is why I say I should be interviewing you for God's sakes. Well, I'm just happy to entertain you so that you don't have to do all the talking. I, I, I want to make sure that that you hear some funny stories too. Well, there it's sort of the 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 time that I came up in the late '70s, early '80s in the New York area all these guys were around. So you could go see Ornette at least once a year. You could go to the Village Vanguard. You could, you know, and so we were in love with this music. That's why I didn't know XTC in the 80s because I was on Jazz Island, Alex Klein shout out. So on Jazz Island, you're not listening to contemporary, uh, it's all output, you know, because now we listen to the to the Cecil stuff and the Ornette stuff and and the Sun Ra and the Archie Shep stuff and all the Coltrane stuff going free, and we were gonna like that was what we were gonna do. It wasn't there was no racial divide. All the band all the best bands were mixed bands pretty much anyway. So we came into an environment where you would go to see every time you could see these guys, you'd go see them. So Sun Ra would play at clubs, play at the bottom line took my dad to see him there. They would come through the audience playing and, you know, and, and then uh, he played at a loft space called Soundscape. And my friend was wearing a, um, a Charles Ives t-shirt. He had a Charles Ives t-shirt and we went backstage. We just walked backstage to say hello to Sonny. And he was super nice. And he looked at my friend's shirt and he said, yeah, man, Charles Ives. <laughs> You know, and also this is the time of Sun Ra and John Cage having that meeting. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I only found out about that recently, actually. Yeah. So there's footage. It's, yeah, it's yeah. VHS, terrible footage. But um, you're a fan at one point, I know, of, of The Grateful Dead. Is that right? Well, what happened was the girlfriend I had at the time had the Live Dead album, the first Live Dead. And without blushing um we would leave dark star on during lovemaking and um i i kept getting distracted by by hearing all these kind of sort of playing a day runs kind of you know that kind of uh uh you know that these sort of they or him climbing up and down the scales and to me being at uh, that learning place it was like wow i can play along with this you know he he'd be um okay i can get that you know i can it, so it was i treated it almost like a um guitar primer if you know what i mean it was it was a kind of how to play like Uncle Jerry. So uh, it was only really that album. I wasn't a, a, a huge fan of other stuff because for me, they strayed a bit too much into country 
and country music was very alien to me, uh, along with opera. I, I, I struggled with opera and I struggled with country music. And Grateful Dead may as well have gone off into opera. So they kind of lost me. But when they were, when they were, it was like how to play guitar kind of lessons. It was in my bag of, okay, I can learn from that. You know, there's a, a few players that, that were really enormous in my learning thing. Um, I've spoken about them a lot, but I'll just do them quickly. Rory Gallagher was one. Absolutely. Paste were wonderful because they, they, they had that blues rock thing, but they started opening up and getting into jazz. Uh, and I can still play pretty much every track on the On The Boards album now, and including the jazzy ones, you know, it's happened before, it happened again, it's happened before, it happened again. Wow. Um, and he was, a, for, for a beginner alto player, he was pretty good. You know, he inspired me to, yeah, if Rory can do it, I'm going to buy an alto too. So I started honking around on one. Really? Yeah. Um, it was a bit painful. It was, it was, it sounded like somebody chasing a, a herd of irate geese through a Lagos traffic jam. You know, it was just honk city. Um, but but uh, Rory Gallagher's guitar playing was, uh, he was the man for me. And then I fell over John McLaughlin with uh, Lifetime. Were and you aware of his other records around that time, like Devotion? Not, not, by, not by the time I'd heard. I went back and checked them out. But uh, the, the first one I was really aware of was Emergency. And that was a, a friend of mine called Spud Taylor who would... Um, He's responsible for the other track of my musical upbringing. I had all the straight stuff from BBC and my parents and the radio and friends records and stuff. I had the straight track, but the other track, the twin track was my friend Spud Taylor, who would get a lot of jazz imports and really out there imports. He would get Han Benning albums sent over from Scandinavia. He would get Sun Ra uh, uh, things sent over from New York and uh, um, and he would force all this really out there stuff on me. He'd say, you know, you give me your records for, for a couple of months, I'll give you mine for a couple of months. And so he'd lend all my straight stuff and I'd lend all his out there stuff. And first of all, I really resisted the out there stuff, but very quickly I, I really got to fall for it. You know, I, I fell big time for, like I say, East Broadway Runday and Sonny Rollins. Um, made a great empty landscape. It's most of that, most of side one is just, uh, is just three instruments and sometimes down to two instruments, sometimes down to one instrument. And it's, it's just like you're stood up there on top of a, on top of a tall building in New York. You must remember, I'd, New York was still a fantasy for me then. I'd never been, but it was like I imagined standing on a building in New York and looking out over the rivers. And um, yeah, so it, it painted great pictures for me. So he would force me to loan all this strange stuff. And uh, I fought it, but really got into it. It just really all clicked, you know. Try this Troutmas replica. No, it's rubbish. They're playing out of time and out of tune. And, and I fought it and fought it and fought it. And then suddenly, bong, 
it, the light bulb went off, a thousand is it, watts. Is it the third or fourth listening? Oh, it was, uh, I must have had it for like six weeks, trying it every day. Really? And I thought, I, I don't, I can't get this. And then suddenly it just, something just hit me that, no, they're playing it like this because it's been rehearsed like this, because it's been written like this. What's the first visual for you in that Beefheart stuff? Well, it's difficult to undo from the brilliant Americana of the lyric. You know, there's so much in that lyric that was exotic for me. You know, whether it was, um, you know, the, the constant dropping of, of brand names, like a, a, a lipstick Kleenex hung on a pointed forked twig or my spidel wrist around my honey. You know, it's uh, this this landscape made by by dropping trademarks and trade names, uh, and then the um, you know the, the the poetry which was severely American. It was more severely American than than Steinbeck or other shit that I was reading. Well, or, you know what? It is Andy to me. It's American beatnik. Yes. Yeah. It's it's Kerouac. It's Kerouac in the Mincer, it's Steinbeck in the Mincer, it's, it's all that stuff. And then, and, and, and we're touching on the nature of creativity here, because um, as, as well as failure being enormously big for me, getting things wrong is enormously big for me. This failure to learn. I'm, I'm learning things wrongly. I can't work out the chords. So... I, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't know the chord he's playing is, so I'm getting my fingers in the wrong place and playing. That's much more interesting. I, I've never heard that chord before, or you know, uh, um, no idea what that is. I've never played that chord in my life before. Uh, in fact, I've never actually played that chord in my life before. That's I'm pretty good. I'm not going to yeah. forget that. Uh, <laughs> but there's that, that's that thing that you do in the guitar lesson video where you say, put your hands down and don't think. And I have yeah, to say, access, accessing the irrational is something that is of use. And, and it's, another, it's an option. Finding a sound you can already hear is one thing. But confronting yourself with sounds that are unfamiliar is another thing because you're synthesizing that then as an artist. To me, they make the words. To me, the words come from the pictures of the chords. You know, the Rhodes Girdle, the Globe uh, um, came from, I watched a thing on TV uh, called um, a Finnish film called Petrol in Their Veins. And I thought, how weird. It's almost like a, a hymn to, to cars. Anthropomorphic. Yeah, I thought, wow, a hymn to cars. That's how the world is going. Maybe I should write a hymn to cars. It's so very I need... futurist. Yeah, absolutely. I was big into the futurists at that point in time. I was reading the Futurist Manifesto. Marionetti. At, at that point, Marinetti, yep. At that point in time, you're the only person that's twigged that in all these years, but I can tell you that's what I was reading at that point in time. I well, stayed it also up looks like an Eastern Bloc post-propaganda poster when I hear that song. I see like the anthropomorphized cars coming over and then there's like 
uh, uh, gas tanks or like gas stations in the back. There's oil yeah. fields. It's like that whole thing is incredible. Yeah, I want I wanted to make it sound like auto wrecks. I wanted it, it to sound like cars crashing into each other. You know the 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 uh, it starts on that. Well, it starts on that that interval. The uh, East Broadway Rundown <laughs> interval. It starts on. It's the same interval with the B on the bottom and the C and the and the C and the G on the top. And, and that is that's got the essence of some shiny chrome going on there. And the 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 that's headlights smashing on and on. That's cars with headlights getting knocked off in an auto accident. It's it's all and, and then the uh, Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's all about colliding metal and and uh, not as in heavy metal, but but colliding thin car panels with with passengers in and yeah, it's it's yeah. it's Andy Marinetti, the music of the machine. Man, I I I love that whole futurist thing, and I thought I thought the I thought great, isn't this punk rock good? Because it will grow and it will become like the next chapter of futurism and dadaism but it didn't it ate itself very quickly oh that's interesting because as xdc comes upon a scene that's throwing around terms like punk and new wave and all this shit you guys are coming in with a different aesthetic and in a way you're eschewing any sort of uh connection to these things i think you guys also being in Swindon probably helped you had your own thing from your own set of interests. Well, and we came from a joke town. That's the thing, you see. Swindon's, so? Swindon's the joke town. Every, every country has a joke town. Uh, I don't know what the joke towns are in the States, but... Um, well, people say New Jersey, where I'm from. There you go. So well, it's, if, if you... When, when, they, when, they, uh, when Ricky Gervais wrote The Office, he based it in uh, the, the the two joke towns are Slough, so he based the office in Slough, and then he had a team visiting or joining them from the other joke town, which is Swindon. And and Swindon's got this reputation of being on the edge of yokel land, so you know my accent is country boy, and um, so, and and anything that comes from that town must be backward and stupid and a bit country hayseed uh, um, so so you know we go and do gigs in London or interviews for the music papers and and it was um, they were all talking in this fashionable fake cockney the mockney the mockney accent talking like that where are you lads from then you're all it's all sound like fucking farmers don't ya? and uh, because you know we Swindon was was out on a limb. Anything that came from Swindon was a joke. So therefore, oh, 
that XTC they're from Swindon and they <laughs> you know it was it was considered to be a joke so that was um, that was why we could never attain cool in England okay but cool wasn't you of use to you uh, no was... no I thought we were para cool we were above beyond we were cool was over there well that's a club we're never going to get in so forget it no 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 and, and in fact you were cooler by doing that <laughs> <laughs> but only the uncool want to get in the cool club well look you know what what does it cost you to be cool maybe too much you know i think yeah i think i think i think if you're passionate you you have some something that's above cool if you if you're passionate about something you you have your own thing that's that's not in the of your of convictions it. yeah absolutely that's important absolutely when everyone you know, says i know we were i know we were mocked viciously uh in our own country we didn't get that mockery in japan or in america or germany or holland or other places but in our own country we were jokes well certainly that's been the case with with other people and and regionalism affects things in weird ways and it's it's in the in the in the palace of ideas you know it's uh it still has its own area and it it's immaterial i mean obviously there is a material element to that unfortunately but the thing about it is that your work stands up i i i present your work to my classes currently at the university and for production values, for detail, for drum sounds, for bass sounds, for guitar arranging, for lyric writing, uh, you know, I, I just find it, it's, um, it's the richest, high, you know, highest level of well, that area. Thank you, thank you. I, I mean, I was immensely lucky finding the people I, I did. I, um, I found Terry and Colin who came as a team <clears throat> because you know bass players are rarer than hen's teeth and, and drummers who can keep time are rarer than hen's teeth uh, there's plenty of drummers that i played with that can hit drums but can't stay in time and that's the first job your first your first requirement is you are the drummer you are keeping the time you know you're not following the guitar player who's speeding up you're not following the piano player who's going in and out. You know, it's, um, so I was really lucky to find a, a good player, a bass player who didn't overplay, who played very melodically. And then he got into writing songs. Once I bullied him into doing backing vocals on a microphone, I said, look, you've got to help me out. This is the chorus. We've got to have two people singing this. And can you sing these notes and, and then we'll get a harmony, you know? So, oh, do I have to, you know? Yeah, yeah, come on, come on. And so and then he started writing songs. So I had a great bass player, a great drummer. The bass player is writing songs as well now. And once we got the, the fourth member steady in, in Dave Gregory, it was, uh, Jesus, I was a lucky man. I mean, Dave's a, a brilliant arranger. Um, ludicrously tasteful in his musical choices of, of, of what he's going to play um 
and he fits in that machine really well. If I'm playing down there and playing that, he'll play a harmony up here and out, out of the way of it on the offbeat to that in the holes or, you know, it's uh, very respectful of the, of the XTC machine, you know? Huge part of it. And, and I was always wondering, what is your favorite Dave moment in the music or your favorite spots that he came up with? Uh, he was always, if he was given a solo, it'd be like, well, blah, 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 blah. And Dave, you, you take the solo. I, I, I'm, you know, I'm busy singing. I need a, a little break here. You take the solo. And he would always shine. He would always shine. Um, his solo in, uh, uh, in That's Really Super Supergirl, mm. uh, it, it was doubly shiny because he got to play it on one of his most worshipped guitars, which was the Fool guitar, Eric Clapton's Fool guitar, which uh, Todd Rundgren owned at the time. And he said to Todd, can I, can I play it on the Fool? And he said, yeah, sure, why not? So Dave really, he knew he had to rise to the challenge because of the song and what he's playing in front of one of his heroes, Todd Rundgren. But also he's playing it on a, you know, to him, it's like, I, I can't think of a holy relic that's comparable. It's you know, an artifact, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's a holy artifact. It's like a the, the icon of icons in his hand here. He's getting to stroke. But he, he came up with a fantastic solo in that. And he came up with a great one in... Um, oh, and Andy, and he quotes a Todd song in the solo. I, well, I'm not a huge Todd fan, so yeah. I wouldn't know, you see. So. Yeah, he quotes Magic Dragon Theater, which is Todd quoting Freak Parade of his own, so... Yeah, I, uh, I didn't know that. I'm going to check that out. Oh, that yeah, yeah. Little Gregory. Old Granny Gregors is quoting people. And what, what, more, what more, what other Greg spots? Well, I mean, his, his solo in, uh, in That Wave. Ooh. Um, he played a great solo originally, but I didn't think it was quite kind of pictorial enough. It didn't quite have it for me. And I said to him, look, we're mixing that wave tomorrow. I was with uh, Nick Davis down at Rockfield Studios. It was me and Nick Davis most of the time. Colin had come down when we were working with his songs. But uh, I said, look, we're, and I'm really not happy with the solo on, on, um, on that wave. Can you come up with something else? And so he didn't want to, he was really resentful, but he, he drove down with his amp and guitar and he had this solo which just you know i used to have a lot of hair before that solo it <laughs> blew it all off you know? yeah. It, yeah it was it was incredible it, it like came from fifty thousand fathoms down took off did an aerial display and back in the ocean again that's interesting that's my image on it too yeah and it just it just rises from the depths and mm -hmm. comes out like some sort of metallic serpent Grinning at a molten, for me, it's like a molten metallic thing that shoots up and comes back. Yeah, down. yeah. And that's that's what I wanted, and he delivered it. You know, but it's it's difficult because if people aren't quite doing what you hear, you've got to find the language where you're trying not to upset them, but to inspire them to to pull something special out of the bag. But Dave usually pulls something special out of the bag, whether it was his whether it was his kind of syncopated parts. He was great at 
sort of diddle 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 almost like a um a human version of the the Bob O'Reilly. Oh well, he does it with you on um Optimism's Flame. Oh, he's fantastic on that. Yeah, I it, no, it's I. There's so many good moments, Dave and Colin too, uh, and and Terry. I mean, uh, I never realised it at the time. You know, you you don't realise it because you're in a band with a bass player, who who lives a, two streets away from you, uh, and went to the same school as you. You're you're in a band with a, a drummer who lives across the field from you, um, and and. Uh, you're in a band with a with a, a kid that's one or two years older. You used to go and see his bands, thinking, "Oh, I'd love to play guitar like that." And you end up in a band with all these people, and it's it's unreal. And they're they're local, and we have this sort of, you know, you develop a sort of surreal humor between you. And we never we never used to talk in terms of song titles. Like Respectable Street was always known as Wombat because of the opening bass and drum line wombat wombat after the guitar you know you get the guitar doing yeah, um, yeah i know the intro you know. and then you get wombat wombat and so it'd be like oh what are we going to open the set with tonight oh let's make it wombat okay so and then and and battery brides was never referred to as battery brides it was always referred to as bjorn borg because that was the the sound of the flanger bass, Bjorn Borg, Bjorn Borg, Bjorn Borg. It was so so. You know, a lot of songs became known by their onomatopoeic fingerprint. <laughs> but that's all part of the kind of band language, you know. Somewhere over there, years ago, I started a dictionary of XTC speak. Oh wow! And I, I got about a hundred words in, you know, how to how to speak XTC. That's fine. So if you were in, if you were in the dressing room and you heard us saying this stuff, you'd you'd know what we meant. You know, it's almost like uh, like Cockney rhyming slang where they could talk in front of police informers without the police informers knowing, or Polari, the gay language where they could speak in front of straight people. Uh, without them knowing, so we we develop kind of our own language to some extent, you know. That fits in perfectly with with how I think of you guys. Yeah. <laughs>